Good to see all of you this morning. My name is Dan. I'm one of the pastors here at Veritas Community Church, and it is a joy to welcome you. So today we're going to continue our series in the Psalms. We have a seven-part series, and we find our way right in the midst of this series in book three, the starting of book three. Perhaps you'll recall the Psalter is organized into five books, book one, two, three, four, and five, and cinched together, it tells a story, an epic story about God and his faithfulness, his covenant integrity and promise to his people, regardless of experiences, regardless of apparent inconsistencies, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of the temple being torn down, in the midst of being exiled out into foreign lands, into enemy territory, God says, I have the blessed man who is the anointed one who is seated on the throne. From the line of King David, he will come to rule and reign over his people. He will transform and roll back the curse into a new heavens and new earth, and his people will live forevermore in his presence, under his victory, Satan, sin, sickness, suffering is obliterated, and now he reigns and we under him reign in this pleasure and beauty in the new heavens and new earth for all eternity. That's the promise found in 2 Samuel chapter 7. That's the Davidic covenant, and that's a a covenant that is looked at and worked through in this epic story that is developed in 150 poems. So over 800 years, these poems were written, and an additional 200 or so years, they were compiled and edited and put together, and under God's care, His inspiration, here is the inspired book called the Psalter, the book, boom. And so we started, and we entered into psalmic world in the doorway of of Psalms 1 and 2, and we saw the characters, there were four of them, and they're popping up all over the place through all these poems as we're moving through it, and we saw the, the plot, and as it thickened and gained tension, and finally there's a resolution in that plot, and it was just a snapshot in Psalms 1 and 2, and then we entered into book 1, and Pastor Brian got us to Psalm 13, where you see how long, Lord, how long, there's many tears in the midst of this pilgrimage, this journey to see the fulfillment of the covenant. God is faithful. This psalmist said, light up my eyes lest I die the death of sleep. And so book one shows that through toil and trouble, God's people under God's care have this hope of the Davidic covenant and they keep moving forward. It commenced there, it started in, but then it starts getting wobbly and starts cringing in book two. And we looked at Psalms 42 and 43, and we saw that there was great suffering. 
And circumstances did not change, though the poet changed and saw that God is his supreme joy in the midst of unpromising circumstances. Even when times do not change, his covenant never is reneged. His faithfulness is true, and he maintains that all the days of his people's lives. So we saw in book one and book two that there's something that could threaten or even thwart God's promise, and thus our hope could crash. But even suffering can't stop God's promise. And now in book three, we enter in right at the seam. If you open up your Bible to Psalm 73, you likely will see bold caps, book three. And so now we're going out of book one and two. Book one and two, you can see that it's kind of sealed off. The last verse in Psalm 72 says that David's prayers are now ended. Telling us a couple things. Telling us that books one and two kind of hold together with this suffering motif that could threaten the hope of Israel, yet God's faithfulness perseveres them even through suffering. And now books three, four, and five kind of look at the subsequent kings or through the line of David, we see leaders rising and falling. And we see the temple threatened and crumbling and burned. And we see God's people taken up in Babylonian captivity and cast off into Babylon and other areas. And it looks like hope again is threatened if not thwarted. 72, we don't have time today, but I'd like you to just read it at some point, and you see an amazing poem. You see the one who is going to come and conquer the entire world with his goodness and, and, and fill the whole earth with the glory of the Lord. This is the consummation of the new covenant. This is Jesus coming and coming again and delivering us from all those Ill, ills. So that's the ideal. And then we step into the real. And so we're going into 73, and this whole grand, glorious vision of the fulfillment of the promise now is going to be extremely challenged. And instead of book one and two, where there's suffering that's challenging that hope, now we go into book three, and we see sin is challenging that hope. And so today, I'm looking forward to today. I love testimonies. How many like testimonies here? I, I really enjoy testimonies. Let's see a few more hands. I really, they're, they're just all over the place. We love to see people who have been captured by the grace of God and taken out of the muck and mire and put on the rock and had a new song in their heart, a song of praise to God, and then they just say it in their own way. Not overly articulate, but oh so powerfully real. Here comes a testimony, and here it is. And God's people listen and listen. And so our hearts thrill with God's grace and mercy in this person, but then we start thinking of, our lives and our church's lives and we see the point of testimony is it is testifying of the goodness of God in the midst of sin. So we'll have a before, during, and after today in this message. Today's message is called My Testimony. 
It took me a long time to come up with that. It was very creative. But as I read Psalm 73 over and over again, I saw clearly the first person singular. So it's my. And then upward, right before verse 1, you see Asaph. So here's the chief Levite who was contemporaries with King David. And then his sons, after he died, they, they would call it uh, of Asaph. So this is his generation. Ten psalms from 73 to 83 are of Asaph, though Asaph probably is dead in, in some of those. But it's just a continuation of his family. He wrote poems. He wrote liturgies. He helped people to sing. And he even sang songs particularly when the Ark of the Covenant came back out of um, the Philistines and now there's victory under David and it's put into the tent and there's the tabernacle and David is dancing and Asaph is writing songs and people are singing. He sounds godly and he is. He's a wonderful man. But he wants to come this morning to give you his personal testimony. So you'll find my testimony in Psalm 73. If you have your Bibles, please open them up. And what I'm going to do with this, it's a large psalm, so the next slide likely will read at a glance. And so I just want us to look at form, structure, and the essence of what we're about to hear. Anytime you come across a poem which starts one way and ends the same way, you see this, this beginning and end uh, uh, mirroring each other. And what that is saying to us is this is the main idea. They didn't have those yellow highlighters in their day, but they did have inclusio, pretty cool word. And what that is, is just the first and the last mirror each other. And so that sandwiches everything in between. And that's what it's about. And so in verse 1 and 28, I'd like you to stand with me and I'm going to read God's word, just those two verses, and then launch into my testimony. Psalm 73, a psalm of Asaph. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Then advance over to verse 28, the last verse in this poem, and it says, But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of your works. Father, I ask now that you help us listen to my testimony in a way that we thrill over you, that we are afraid over sin, that we open wide to your mercies, that we can leave here claiming that this is my testimony. And we pray it in your name. Amen. You may be seated. And so what we see here at a glance is God is good, God is good, but in the midst of this sandwich, we start seeing a lot of activities, a lot of activities. He says in verse 2, but as for me, and then he concludes, but as for me. So what we're going to see is movement. We're going to see the movement of faith 
Entering into, working through, and then coming out of confusion, sin, bewilderment, disappointments, disorientation, and out he goes. The, the movement is from struggling with God to sweet communion with God. We, we will see that there's a downward trend, and it goes down, down, down deep into darkness. And he hits something, and it kind of pivots, and it starts moving his, his heart and his eyes upward and outward. And then we see an ascension moving upward and outward to verse 28. So let's get to work. His name is Asaph. He has come to give my testimony. Starting up in verse 1 of Psalm 73, we see Asaph giving us his testimony. He says, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. This is our tradition. As a Jew, we, we grew up in a Jewish family. We were under the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And we were schooled in the Torah. And the essence of the Torah is God is good. Good to whom? To Israel, the covenant community, the one on whom God places his affections and his attention. Those are the ones who are pure in heart. Oh, it doesn't mean that we didn't sin. It means that we have a, 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 not a double-mindedness, a, a, a wholeheartedness, a single focus. We are Israelites, and God is good to us. Oh, as a little boy, my daddy always take me and tuck me into bed, and he would give me the Shema. He would say, hear, Asaph. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And these words, Asaph, are given to me to give to you, to teach you diligently, to walk with you, to talk with you, to sit down with you, to lie down with you and rise with you and say these words day after day after day. Oh, I had a good upbringing. And our tradition was true. It was the premise. It was bedrock. Nothing is going to trouble this reality. And then it happened. There, there, there was tension building in my life of now that I'm older and looking around, my experience and my upbringing and tradition didn't quite fit together. They didn't mesh. They, there seemed to be some discontinuity, some inconsistencies. I didn't, didn't know what was happening. And, and so I give you to start my testimony, my confession. And it starts up in verse 2, but as for me, my, my feet almost stumbled. My, my steps had nearly 
slipped. Four, hear my heart now. I was envious. There was a bitterness growing deep in my heart as I looked around. And what did I see? I saw the wicked flourishing. I saw ourselves suffering. That's not what Papa told me. That's not what the Old Testament was telling me. I, I remember in Proverbs it's saying that the way of wickedness is a hard way. I don't know. That's what it says. But then I look around and the way of the wicked will perish. We read the Psalter together. At least a little bit of it. And Psalm 1 said, the wicked perish. They don't look like they're perishing. I want what they want. I want what they have. I'm in this tight tradition and they're in loose living and they're happy. They're free. <laughs> Who doesn't want to be free and happy? And we are tight in our tradition and we wash our hands with, for purity and we keep our hearts close to the tradition. I was starting to get discontented in my God and started looking around going, huh, look at this. Here's my confession. I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs unto death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness and their hearts just simply overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against heavens and the tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Blame me if you must, but I was on a slippery slope. My feet are slipping and I'm going down and yet I'm kind of enjoying it because the inconsistencies are too much for my soul. I look in a book, it says one thing, I look out the window and it invites me to a wholly different world. What am I supposed to do? And then I get close to them and they taunt or they invite and they say, really? Does God know? Does God have knowledge about you? I started thinking a little bit. I don't know. It's almost like I had a flashback into the garden in Genesis 3, and Eve's going, well, I don't know, maybe. God's word might not be completely helpful and completely accurate. I mean, it's pretty good, but my experience was overtaking me. And then I did it. I did it. I just 
threw open my arms, and in verse 12, I said, Behold, look at the wicked. My new perspective here. I'm starting to see life as it really is. Verse 12, Behold, these are the wicked. Always, always, always at ease. They increase in riches. Oh, I want that. Look at that. All in vain I've kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. All day long I've been stricken and rebuked. I'm done with this. Oh, synagogue, can you hear me? How can it be so wrong when it feels so right? That was my understanding of the wicked now as I saw tradition meet experience and the tension could not hold. And experience started overtaking it. There it is. There's my new lifestyle. There's my new freedom. I finally found what life is all about. But life is a mystery. Can't quite figure why I would think like that. And then all of a sudden, I start glitching. And inside, my, my conscience is starting to trouble me a bit. I, I'm starting to think, I am a leader in God's people. And my heart is saying these things that are tantalizing and stimulating to my flesh, but pretty soon they're going to come out my mouth. How am I going to say it publicly? And if I did say it publicly, oh God, I would betray the next generation, the children, the children, your people. I look out into God's covenant community and I see little ones. And if I started speaking like I'm thinking the way I just showed you, they would hear this, and they would see a leader, and they would go, huh, maybe he has something that we don't have. And all of a sudden, there's an exodus away from Yahweh, our God. And now I'm, I, I'm actually betraying the little ones. I can't handle that. It's starting to disturb me. Tension is rising in me. I can't figure out why, because I just figured out life, and yet my conscience is really starting to shake me. I said one simple prayer to the Lord because I was done praying to Him as I found my new life. And I said, if I speak thus, I will betray your children. I'm stopping. I'm not going to pray to Him anymore. I know. I'm going to think my way out of this. Surely there's a way that I can understand. And so with one hand on this cheek and the other hand on this cheek, I'm just bearing down, thinking and thinking and struggling and grappling just with myself because I'm a good thinker. I am an educated man. I can figure this thing out and get out and finally enjoy the lifestyle that looks way better than tight tradition. But it was wearisome to me. It almost felt like Ecclesiastes. I could not understand until 
until. I don't know why I did this, but I did. I went into the sanctuary. Verse 17. It almost felt like the escalator going down has stopped and I got off. And I begin to look around the precincts in the sanctuary. I begin to look at the altar and the sacrifices that told me how awful sin was and yet there's hope that there's a sacrifice that will, will, will wash me or, or, or at least point me to a cleansing that I can be free and forgiven from all my sins. And then I saw the basin, the bowl with a lot of water and, and there's cleanliness in here. And then there were stories, stories all over the place, liturgies and, and drawings and things that reminded me of the Garden of Eden and and, and, and how beautiful it is, and, 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 and this promise, this promise that, Eve, you will have through your lineage a seed who will crush the evil one and crush his skull. He will be victorious, and I will roll back this curse. Well, I remember that. And then I started hearing people talk about, they love to talk about the Exodus, and how we used to be under bondage and slavery and under wickedness, Pharaoh whipping us and whipping us and whipping us. And then God sent a deliverer into our lives. Oh, I remember the deliverer. His name was Moses. And he went and he took on Pharaoh, and he said, let God's people go. And eventually, through all the plagues, we were released. And the last one, we were told to get inside. And after you slay the, the lamb, this is Passover, now we're going to put blood on the lintels of the doorway and stay in and under the blood, and the destroyer will pass over us. We will be saved, and now we're going to be liberated, because here it comes. In haste, two million of us went out of the slave market and went into the water and out of the water, and now we're in a land that we journey until we hit the promised land. What a story. Now, all of a sudden, inside this sanctuary, somehow, some way, something mysteriously was going on in my life that I began to see. I, I got discernment. I, I'm not insane anymore. Sobriety is back. Sanity has arrived. And now I'm able to see. See clearly what truly is true. Verse 18. Sight to see has been given to me, and now I can see their fatal future. Verses 18 through 20. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors like a dream when one awakes. O Lord, when you arouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. So now I don't I don't want what they have or what, want what they teach. Or I see the results of their lifestyle. 
I can see clearly. I also can see clearly to see my own sin. Verses 21 and 22. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. I used to have clear thought. I, I wrote songs. I wrote liturgies. I led people in worship, but then something, somehow, I started slipping. And then I became almost like a, uh, an ignorant beast. I was stupid. I was told sin is stupid, but now sin has made me stupid. I can't understand. But oh, coming out of the sanctuary, someone is in, around, and through me to give me new sight, and now I can see sin, and now I can grieve sin. Oh God, right before you, I was pricked in the heart and looked like a brute, looked like a beast. And then my eyesight even saw that God was in my mess when I was in my mess. I thought he left. No. Look, verse 23. Nevertheless, I am continually with you, Asaph. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. When I was ignorant, insane, and thinking thoughts that were going to destroy the covenant community... You didn't leave me. You didn't leave me. You actually were in the mess. And it's kind of like when we get together in, a, in an assembly, I see a, a, a young mom with her little toddler, and she says, put your hand in mine, sweetie. And then they walk over, and she guides her, and then she receives her into her joy. That's what you did to me. Somehow, some way, you, you recaptured my imagination. You recaptured my heart. And now, look, you, you, you held, guided, received into glory. <laughs> Life is a gift, it's not an achievement. We don't work our way towards his goodness. He's good. He's tender. He's compassionate. Even in our sin, he is tender-hearted and of quick sympathy. That's the goodness of God. That's what grabbed me. And now he holds me, helps me, has me for himself. And then I saw something else. I can get my glasses on. I'll see it. And it says, I actually saw God. I saw Him more clearly than ever before. Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh, my heart, they both may fail, but God is the strength of my heart. He is my portion forever. Oh, I remember reading the Psalter in Psalm 16. You lead me in the paths of righteousness, and in your presence is 
fullness of joy in your right hand are pleasures forever. That's what I wanted. It's not in the world. It's actually in Yahweh, in God. Premium, permanent. And I can see you. Now you are my treasure. You are my portion. You are my rock. You are my strength. Even when times of distress and disorientation hit, my heart, my flesh will fail. But, and there he is to restore, strengthen, and have us back. I love him. I could see one more thing coming out of the sanctuary. So I weave it into my testimony for God's people. He says in verse, I say in verse 27, For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good, I mean really good, to be near God. I have made the Lord my refuge. And then we hit a purpose statement. That, so that, I can tell of your works. Now, unabashedly, without any fear, I use my lips to tell of him and his works. When I was ignorant, when I was insane in my sins, I wanted to use my lips to lead God's people astray. And he stopped me. And he started me in this new sight, this new discernment to see their end, to see my sin, to see God in the midst of the mess, to see God as my treasure, to see how I can declare from this day forth and forevermore, God is good to his people, even in our sin. Well, that's why I called this message my testimony. Because I love Asaph, and I wanted to bring him out of the dead and put him in front of you. But then I started looking at my life, and some of you know my life, and you could almost say, my testimony, is Pastor Dan giving his testimony? I am. I am. And it could be really, really sad at this moment if verse 17 weren't there, <laughs> but it is, and he caught me, and he clarified me, and he filled me, and an upward trend, a new perspective has arisen. Will I ever go down a descent? Mm -hmm. I drift, but God is good to his people, even in their sin, and he arrests me, he catches me, he holds me, he helps me. He reorients me. He points me to the Christ. I say, I was ignorant. Help me. Thank you. Help me to open my life and open my mouth for your glory. I was going to leave it there, and then I thought, some of you like to write things down. And so here are some reflections, some exhortations that I thought might glean this sermon or this psalm for your, your well-being. But what I want to see in Veritas is that you will carry your testimony called my testimony. And you will use 
my testimony personally and powerfully wherever you go and in, in this area. So, first off, be alert to your own signs of early drift. We do not need drift to go to the eights and nines and tens. You know that there's drift in the flesh. And so when you feel it starting to move, like at a .5 or a 1 or a 2, sense it. Call it on yourself. There it is. You're not alone. Every human goes through it. Second, be aware of and honest about your personal vulnerabilities. All of us have a series and sets of vulnerabilities. And so if that movie troubles you, turn it off. If that song reminds you of things that aren't like the tradition, the holy scriptures, turn it off. If you go to the mall and you're walking down and you just say, hey, this is just window shopping, and you start looking at your heart and getting discontent with God and going, gosh, I wish I looked like that. Dang. And the heart starts moving. Watch your vulnerabilities. Notice the places where you're more tempted and vulnerable and stay clear as necessary. Third, be persuaded that full and forever is infinitely better than partial and passing. Do you know what I mean by that? Partial and passing is the ways of the, of the world. You can read it in 1 John, and it just takes wings and flies away. Or James says it's just like a vapor and it's gone. Ecclesiastes goes on and on and on about passing pleasures. No, no, no. Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, the Son of God who came and lived the life we should have lived and died the death we should have died and was raised in triumphal vindication as the first fruits of the new creation. Here he is. And there he will be when he comes. He is full and forever. Sink your affections deep within him. Fourthly, be convinced that sanity comes in the context of community and insanity comes in isolation. Do you understand what I'm saying? I love community and I love isolation. I love my books. I love my study. I love my away from distractions. But at times, I start entertaining notions, tacit notions, idiotic things. I go, what, what am I doing? And I plunge into this, and I feel so much better. Sanity is here. Lastly, be confident that God's grace keeps and preserves his people. Never doubt that you who turn from your sin and put your hope and trust in Jesus Christ, you are sealed by faith in him, united by faith with him. Where he goes, you go. Where he is, you are. You are tight. You are tucked. You are together with Jesus Christ. Though your flesh and your heart may fail, see it quickly. Get help. Get into the community. Cry out and watch what he does inside you to transform the heart that will transform the life. Let's pray. Gracious Father, I thank you again and again for rescuing grace, for sovereign grace, well-timed grace, 
that hunts us down and recaptures us and draws us in. I pray that for us here at Veritas. I pray that your grandeur, your glory, your grace, your goodness will be center stage, put on the pedestal for all of us to say, whom have kept you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. Blessings and praise to you, and now when we come to the table, help us to reflect upon and remember the Lord Jesus Christ in a renewed, participatory way that we leave here refreshed, invigorated, and ready to tell any and all of your works. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.